Welcome to The Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Let's have a quick word of prayer um, before we open God's Word. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much that we have your Word. We ask and pray that this morning you may speak. In Jesus' name, Amen. Today's message is looking at the first angel's message. Um, I have never preached a sermon on the first angel's message in its entirety. I've mentioned it in passing, um, but I haven't spent a sermon dedicated solely to the text, which is actually quite a sad thing. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, we can skim over some texts or we can allude to a text but never really dig into the text. And today we're just going to take two verses. Yes, we're going to have a look at other verses throughout the scriptures, but we're mainly going to focus on Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, which is the first angel's message. Um, Next week, or not next week, but in the next message, we'll look at angel's message number two and three. But I want to ask you a question straight from the get-go. And the question is this. What is worship? If you had to define worship, how would you define it? This is, I want this to be a bit interactive. If you had to define worship right here and right now, how would you define it? Allegiance. Okay. Any other ideas? Communicating with God. Okay, that's another good one. You know, when it comes time, when it's 11 o'clock Sabbath morning, we're saying, okay, it's time to go and worship. It's a common mentality, I think, that we have. We call this the worship service or the worship hour. But do you think that worship is broader than just an hour time slot in a weekly schedule? Absolutely. I mean, more than the question, what is worship? The question we should ask is, why do we worship? I mean, why do we worship? Why do we gather here every week? Why do we wake up in the morning and pray like Shirley was talking about? Why do we take the cable out of the TV like Dave? And why does Chad open up his Bible and read the Bible every day? Why do we worship? I heard relationship. Appreciate something greater. Let's unpack that a little more. We're appreciating something greater. We're appreciating something That someone has done for us. Has God done something for us? A small thing? It's a vast thing. We come and worship. And this is the amazing thing about worship. God is not a fellow worshiper with us. He is the one who is worshipped. And we come to worship and sometimes we have this mentality that worship is about me and what I bring. Worship is about me and what I get. But when I read the Bible, worship isn't about the individual and what they receive. Worship is about giving to God and giving praise and glory and honor to him. It's so easy in a consumeristic society to pretend that God is like a vending machine where we put in and we get. And worship becomes more self-centered than God-centered. We're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. It's interesting, isn't it? So I just want you to think about it in terms of relationship. What is marriage? Is marriage a one-day-a-week activity? I hope that you say no. It's a day-by-day relationship that develops and grows as you spend time with that individual. The same is with worship. 
You go to work, you're actually worshipping. You go to school, you're worshipping. You eat your lunch, you're worshipping. The way that you live your life is worship. It's not an hour period in time once a week that we come to church and sing songs. That's important, but worship is a life that we actually live. With that in mind, open up with me to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 7, because this is two simple verses that unpacks the whole idea of worship very plainly. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Scripture reads this. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. What I love about this final message that is to go to the world is that this message is centered, or you could say it is packaged in the everlasting gospel. In other words, it's the gospel that has never changed. It's the gospel that has always been. It's everlasting and it's inclusive because it goes to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. It goes to the world. In other words, God has no favorites. God is on your side. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to receive the everlasting gospel. And the reason that it is everlasting is because it cannot be destroyed. Satan wishes to destroy it. Actually, Satan attempts to destroy it. But it cannot be destroyed by the power of man or the power of the devil himself. It will endure to the end. And the fruits, the results of the everlasting gospel will be everlasting themselves. When you walk on the sea of gold, the sea of glass, in the kingdom made new, the fruits will be everlasting of that gospel. They will never be taken again. They will stand forever. Is that good news? It's the best news. See, if this is the case, church, the gospel is pivotal in our worship because it is a response from us for what God has done. Worship is always involving accepting the gospel. If you had to define the gospel, how would you define it? We probably get many different answers and a lot of them would absolutely be right. I find the most powerful statement demonstrating what the gospel is is found by Ellen White in the book or in, the, in her manuscript number 49. She says this, hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? It takes the whole gospel message, the whole good news, and it centers it on a person. And the main person in the character of this story is who? It's Jesus. We come to worship each and every week. We're not the main characters in the story. We never have been. God is the main character of our worship. To God be the glory, great things that he has done. God is the object of our praise. He's the one that we lift our voices to. We're in the background. We're in the distance. And God is in the forefront. That's why we worship. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. This is our message, our argument, our doctrine, our warning to the impenitent, our encouragement for the sorrowing, the hope for every believer. Do you believe it, church? And I think sometimes we don't package our message in the light of the gospel. Now, I want to just clarify this point. The gospel isn't some sentimental, wishy-washy, lovey-dovey feeling. The gospel can be hard. It involves picking up a cross and following Jesus. 
But in the very center, the very core of the gospel, it is Jesus hanging on the cross, dying the death that I deserve to die, that I might live the life that only he deserves. This is the center of our message. This is the center of all of our doctrines. You know, um, when I think of God's final message, I think of the reality that the final message, before we get into any of this final message to the dying world, the everlasting gospel goes first. Actually, the everlasting gospel is the packaging or the framework for the first angel's message and the second angel's message and the third angel's message. It's centered in the gospel. It's packaged in the gospel. Are you guys good at wrapping presents? I'm terrible. When it comes to wrapping presents, it's not that I don't want to wrap presents or I'm not good at wrapping presents. It's just that I don't want to try to wrap a present. Now, there's a thing that we do as males, and I apologize, males, in advance for actually divulging this information to the females in the congregation today. There is something that we do, and it's something that we're intrinsically born with, and it's something called feigning incompetence. And my true males, it's called feigning incompetence. I'll give you an example. It works perfectly. Now, I've already told Rosie about this, so, but she still does it. So let's say that I have a, a shirt, and it's creased. I want to go iron that shirt. So I take my shirt, I put up the ironing board, I turn on the iron, I put it on the ironing board, and then I'm ironing, I'm like, oh, I just can't do this, it's so hard. And I say it loud enough that Rosie can hear. And guess what Rosie says? Oh, let me do it. And then she does it for me. It works, doesn't it, males? Or maybe it's just me. So (laughs) this is the thing. I'm not very good at wrapping presents. I'm not very good at packaging something. So I feign incompetence, and when that doesn't work, I try to wrap it myself. And I'm going to show you a few pictures on the screen of what my wrapping looks like. I've actually done that before. I wrapped a present for my brother, and I wrapped it in newspaper. I wonder what Dad's getting for Christmas. Um, That's a lot better than what I could ever do. This is my personal favorite. Um, This is for Mum. A lot of effort went into that. Um, and a name's written in tomato sauce and mustard. Happy birthday, Mum. And then this one. I actually want to do this one. That zip ties all around the present. And it's from a brother. Um, two idiot sister from brother. You know, I actually want to do that one. That looks good. But I mean, I think sometimes the way that we package a present communicates something about the value of the gift that's inside. So let me just use this example, this picture on the screen just here. Do you think mum's gift would have been valuable if that's how her son wrapped it? I'm assuming it's a son. It probably was a son. It wouldn't have been that valuable. Why? Because the tomato sauce or the mustard would have seeped through the wrapping and it would have probably stained the nice dress if there was a nice dress in there. It's probably just two subways in there. But you understand, the way that we package something communicates something about the value of what's inside it. And if this everlasting message isn't packaged in the everlasting gospel, then the value of what's inside loses its value in the, eyes, in the ears sorry, of those who are hearing it. That makes sense? The thing is, church, our message must be packaged in the gospel. It has to be. Absolutely. 
So in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, we find the essence, what's inside of this, this message of the everlasting gospel that goes to the world. In verse 7, the scripture says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Point number one is we accept the gospel. Point number two is we live the gospel. The gospel must be lived. When I read that text and it says, fear God and give glory to him. We don't usually think of the word fear in a positive, in a positive light. It usually has negative connotations, doesn't it? Fear, does that mean that we have to be terrified of God? Does that mean that we have to be afraid of God? What do you think? When we look at the word fear in scripture, it's talking about understanding who God is in the light of who we are. You can have a look at numerous accounts in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament where God reveals himself to somebody and they fall on the ground because they recognize who they are in their sinfulness and they see who he is in his sinlessness. This is what it means to fear God. In the, in the words of Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom. It's where it all starts when we understand who God is. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When we know God for who he is, we have a respect and a reverence for him. Isn't it interesting that this final message that goes to the world before Jesus comes is a message that calls for the reverence of the Lord God Almighty. In a day and age where God is just a byword that's used in curses. Understand who the Holy One is. Understand what he has done. Understand what he is doing. And understand what he will do. Respect God and lift him up. A right understanding will always lead us to worship. A wrong understanding will always lead us to be afraid. When I think of Jesus, whenever Jesus did a mighty work, he healed someone. He gave sight to the blind. He healed the leper. He calmed the storm when he was resurrected from the dead. They worshipped him. They worshipped him for what he had done. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is a story of um, where Jesus was on the boat and the wind and the waves, the waves were crashing into the boat and the wind was tossing the boat to and fro. And the disciples were absolutely terrified in the boat. We know that story quite well. And Jesus stands up in the midst of the storm and he says three words. Does anyone know what those three words are? Peace, be still. And what happens to the wind? What happens to the waves? What happens to the storm? Immediately it stops. And it goes from being tempestuous to being dead calm to the point where you can look into the water and you can see your reflection just like that. Imagine being on the boat. Imagine seeing that. Imagine experiencing that. What would you think about Jesus? Would you just be like, whoa, who is this guy? Look at the response of the disciples. It's a response of worship. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. When we recognize God for who he truly is, we are compelled to worship. The angels in heaven, they say, holy, holy. Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. He who was, he who is, and he who is to come. They're not compelled to do that. They're not forced to do that. But they see who he is in the light of who they are. And they are sinless. But they recognize that he is their creator. And they are drawn, their heart is drawn out to worship him for who he is. 
I think it's quite amazing, this text. You just imagine this, just unpacking the text a little bit. Does Jesus say, in the name of the Father in heaven, peace be still? He doesn't say that. He doesn't summon anyone else's name to calm the storm. The disciples in the book of Acts, the apostles, as they go out to teach and to preach and to heal, they say, in the name of Jesus, behold, in the name of Jesus, stand. They use Jesus' name as the authority to heal, to cleanse and to restore. Jesus doesn't. Why? Because he has authority enough. The authority is in his name. The authority is in his power. He doesn't pull out a magic wand. He doesn't say magic words. He just says, peace be still. The words in the Greek are literally like, put a muzzle on it. I have a noisy dog next door to my house. And when I say be quiet, I don't use those words exactly, but when I say be quiet, it doesn't actually be quiet. But Jesus is basically saying, be quiet, you noisy dog. He's not calling it a dog, but you get the idea. He's just saying, put a muzzle on it. And it listens to him. I mean, who else could do that? We are compelled to worship when we understand who God is and what he has done, you know. I'm going to share a little bit of a personal story just here. When I was growing up, um, it's going to be hard to share this story. My mum's here today. It's not about you, mum. I can just see her wincing, you know. My dad's not here, so I can share about him. Um, When I was growing up, I never really had a really good relationship with my dad. Not because he wasn't present, not because he wasn't near, not because he didn't love me. He did all of those things. But I just never really realized it. I mean, as a male, sometimes we communicate love, love in different ways, if you know what I mean. We do stuff for our family. We provide for our family. We assist our family. We work for our family. We do those types of things. I very, very rarely heard the words, I love you. And maybe that's just because that's the experience that he had with his father. And that's the experience he had with his father. And I never really understood my dad. You know, I knew that he loved me. But I don't know, I just never related to it. I never experienced, I never understood the love that he had for me. When my parents separated, he started spending more time with us. It's like he actually was a different person. That's the person he was all the way along. He was just showing love in a new way, in a way in which I could understand it. And my heart drew out after him. I always loved him, absolutely, but I saw it differently. And I think it's sometimes the same with Jesus. We come to church, we sing the songs, we read our Bibles, we just don't really get it. But at one moment, we might have a a road to Damascus experience. Not everybody has those experiences. And then we see Jesus for who he is and we fall desperately in love with him. Maybe for you, it's been a gradual experience. I just pray that you're having an experience with Jesus. Because you can't have an experience with Jesus through anyone else but yourself. It's up to you. You've got to live the gospel. You accept it, you live it. To fear God is to understand who he is and who you are. The second thing is to give glory to him. For the hour of judgment has come. We see that in verse 7. Our life, church, is a life of worship. It's not an hour that we give to God one day a week. It's not a 24-hour period of time that we give to God one day a week. Our whole lives are worship. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And have a look at what Paul says about worship and what worship looks like. 
We sang a song at the beginning of our worship service this morning, and it was, Come, now is the time to worship. I've already sung today. I'm not going to sing it again. That's enough for another two years, Rosie. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, imagine if we sang that song like this, Come, now is the time to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. I don't think we would really want to sing that song. But this is what Paul says about worship. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Why do you think Paul says that our worship is a living sacrifice? Do you think it's language that they could understand? Do you think it's language that they could comprehend in their culture? I mean, they had probably been to sacrificial altars before and seen a sacrifice. And Paul says, your worship is you being sacrificed. But there's something odd about the text. The sacrifice usually died. But in this verse, the sacrifice is alive. What does that mean? In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, For I have been crucified with Christ. That's the thing that has died. Yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the beautiful reality of our lives, which is a sweet sacrifice unto God. We are on the altar, dead but alive, dead to sin but alive to Christ. And the fact that it is alive is because at any moment we can choose to hop off that altar. You choose to accept it. You choose to follow Jesus. You choose to commit your life to Jesus. At any point, you can turn your back off from Jesus and hop off. And I pray that our experience with God isn't one like a yo-yo where we're on and off, hot and cold, in and out. We need to be for God 100% of the time. It doesn't mean that we're not going to mess up. But each and every day, we are a living sacrifice unto him. The way that we relate to those around us. The way that we conduct our business the way that we um, take the studies up at school, the way that we spend time in God's word is an act of worship unto God. And because it's lived, it's visible. It's visible for all to see. No one can deny the life that we are living. How is our faith judged? How is this life of faith revealed to the world around us? Through our actions. It shows the reality of the gospel message that we have received. If there is a disparity between our profession and our life, what's the problem? The problem's with our profession, isn't it? Maybe we haven't fully accepted the gospel. Maybe Christ really isn't living within us. Because the hour of judgment has come, and the hour of judgment doesn't judge our profession, it judges our actions. In Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14, it says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, some people, when I read this text, that's bad news. For some people, it's good news. But the good news this morning is that if it's in Jesus, if that judgment is in Jesus, then it's good news. God wants us to be living sacrifices, not one day a week Christians, not an hour a week Christians, but he wants our profession to match our action, and that is only possible through the grace of Christ and him living in us. That's the only way that it's going to be the case. You know, um, I've got a picture up on the screen here. I'm just going to illustrate this point. 
Um, I shared a, an illustration last week about paintball. Does anyone remember that? Yeah, yeah, that was a terrible illustration, terrible picture. On that day that we were assigning teams for our paintball, I got to, cho- I got to choose my team for the, the games that we had at the start. And I got to choose who I wanted on my team. I was the captain, someone else was the captain for their team. And I was looking, I was scanning through all my mates who were there that day, and I'm like, I want the toughest people on my team. And my cousin was there. Now my cousin, this isn't a picture of my cousin, but it's kind of like my cousin. He drives a motorbike. Yeah, he's tough. Not, not like a, a Japanese motorbike. He, he drives one of those, you know, low, you know, the handlebars are like up here. I don't know how you can actually drive it. So he's driving like this, you know. He's got one of those motorbikes. He's got long hair that he probably never washes. That's tough. He's got um, stretches in his ears. That's tough. He's got tattoos all over him. That's really tough. And he's got a moustache. That's tough. And I'm looking at him just like, yeah, first person picked. Mitchell, you're on my team. And he walks over, you know, he just looks real tough. When we were playing the games, I couldn't find him. I didn't know where he was. And by the end of the three sessions, like, where are you, Mitchell? I was showing him all my wounds. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I got... This one here. I'm like, can't even see that thing. And this is what happened. He was hiding in the bushes the whole entire game. He professed to be the toughest. He looked to be the toughest, but he was actually the softest. So what's the judgment for? It's to show what lives we are really living, which master we have really chosen. That's the purpose of it. You know, um, the second part of Revelation 14, turn back with me there. And the third point of the sermon today, not only is worship accepting the gospel, living the gospel, it's also resting in the gospel. The last point in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7 says, And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It's a cool thing, eh? I mean, in this whole entire angel's message, there is only one thing that shows us how to worship. And that's this verse just here. Worship him who made. What title would you give to somebody who's made something? Would you give them an electrician? Would you give it a baker? In the context of this passage, would you say, well, God's the baker of the world. God's the electrician of the world. What, What title would you give him? Creator. And how do we worship our creator? There's a very, very clear allusion to the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20, it's essentially word for word. So when John writes this final angel's message, that is to go to all the world before Jesus comes, he's basically parroting or plagiarizing, you could say, the Old Testament. What God had written with his finger in the book of Exodus. He says, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Look what it says in the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Isn't that powerful? So the final message to the world is a message of the gospel. It's a message to live the gospel. But it's also a message to embrace the rest that's found in the gospel, to worship the creator God. And we worship the creator God on the day that he is set aside for worship, which is the Sabbath. That is entirely opposite to righteousness by works. I mean, people come to me and say, oh, the Sabbath, it's works, it's legalism. 
And you know what I think? The Sabbath is rest. Rest is entirely opposite to works. It's righteousness by faith, trusting that God, who says when we come and rest with him on that day, he sanctifies us. We come on the Sabbath day, and are we worshiping the creature or the creator? Creator. All focus is on him. It's not on us. And in the context of Revelation 13 and Revelation 14, in Revelation 13, the beast, the Antichrist, calls for false worship five times. Worship me, worship me, worship me, worship me. But it's all false worship. And then we come to Revelation 14, and the only time, the one and only time that God calls for worship is to worship him as the creator. He's alluding to the fourth commandment. Why does God only say it once and the beast says it like seven times? God only has to repeat himself once. When God says it, he means it. I don't know about you, but there have been times when God has revealed his will to me in my life, and I knew that God revealed his will to me, and he shut a door, but I tried to pick the lock and get in anyways. We like try to find verses that justify our opinions or our thoughts. God has written this message in stone with his very finger. When we use the saying, it's written in stone, what are we saying? It's immovable and it's changeless. Well, God has written this in stone. And he's reminding the world that he has written this in stone. This is the message, church, that we bear. This is the message that we should proclaim. This is the final message that is to go forward before Jesus comes. The Sabbath shows us who is worshipped. And this is what I love about the Sabbath as we begin to wind this up. God always initiates. We always respond. I'll give you an example. The Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? Had Adam and Eve done anything to deserve the Sabbath? I mean, they'd only been in existence for a number of hours. God gives them the Sabbath. It's a gift that he gives. And a gift is always undeserved. And something that is undeserved is grace. The first gift of grace that was given to humanity was the gift of Sabbath. Gift of a relationship with God. It's not a right that we have. God could have sat back and said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with them. It's a gift. It's a privilege that he's extended to each and every one of us. And I tell you what, that's a good gift. What about salvation? Who of us here have assisted to Jesus' salvation on the cross? So when Jesus was dying on the cross, who here assisted to the redemption of the world? Who here assisted the redemption of their own souls? We haven't. God initiates, we respond. God gives gifts. It gives are undeserved. And undeserved gifts is grace. And God is very, very good at giving grace. I guess how do I wrap up this message of the first angel's message? Well, I'm going to finish it with this. We bear a responsibility. We bear a commission. And God has entrusted it to us. The gospel that is accepted, the gospel that is lived, and the gospel that is rested in is a gospel that moves. In Revelation 14, there's an angel. And what's the angel doing? It's flying. It has urgency. It's going forward. It's saying in a soft, timid voice, 
Is that what it's saying? In a loud voice. You don't say something loudly if you're unashamed of it. Paul says, For I am unashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Are we ashamed of the gospel message, church? Are we ashamed of the power of God unto salvation? Are we ashamed of the gospel message that packages the three angels' messages? You can't have one without the other. The context of this verse says that the gospel message, the everlasting gospel that goes to all the world as a witness to all the nations before the end comes, is a message that includes fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. That is a part of the gospel message. It's the full gospel. It's the complete restoration that God wants to bring to this earth, and he wants to bring it through you. In a world where everything is easy and everything is compromised, what would it take for God's people to say, you know, we are actually going to proclaim this with a loud voice, not just a timid, God bless you, love Jesus, or in our emails, blessings, or Christian regards. If that's the extent of our witness, then we are not proclaiming with a loud voice. And our mission should never be forced. It should be born from a heart of love. When you spend time with Jesus, you can't but share him with others. It flows out and all can see it. And God's people who shared this final message from Revelation chapter 10, they had this great disappointment. And the angel says, go forward again and prophesy about many nations, tongues, and people. And we pick it up in here. And this is where we are today, church. This is where you are today. God's people move. God's message is never stagnant. It advances. The Christian message was born in the Middle East. Is the Middle East a stronghold for the Christian message today? It's not. The Christian message then spread to Europe. Is Europe a stronghold for the Christian message today? Well, not the true Christian message, and secularism has taken over. The Christian message then spread to America. Would you consider America a stronghold for the Christian faith today? Not as it used to be. Secularism has taken charge. Where is the stronghold of the Christian faith today? You go to places like Africa, China, South Korea. Southern America. These things are telling us straight away that God's message moves with the people who are willing to share the message. And it's going forward quickly. And it will go forward with us or without us. Those who have embraced the gospel will live it. I'd like to invite the the music guys up right now. Those who embrace the gospel will live it. And those who live the gospel will share it. Father in heaven, we want you to come into our lives. More than, Father, what we've let you in before. We want to be a living sacrifice unto you. We want our lives to be lived unto God and God alone. Father, forgive us for living for ourselves. Forgive us for worshipping, Lord, ourselves rather than you. We turn our attention to you, and in this moment, Father, we know that our promises and resolutions often are like ropes of sand, but, Lord... This evening, this afternoon, we commit ourselves into your hands and say, Father, make us, shape us and mould us into what you want us to be. Father, we accept the gospel. 
We accept the man of the gospel. We're hanging upon the cross. Christ was the gospel. We accept him into our hearts and lives now. And may he shape our mission. May he shape our message. May he shape our lives. Is a prayer that we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. My wife and I have always wanted to buy a motorhome. From time to time, we've gone online to look at these beautiful vehicles. We've gone to the yards and some of them have these big slides that pop out on both sides to create a remarkably large living space. It is fair to say that these new homes on wheels were a lot more expensive than we wanted to pay. And from a practical perspective, a nice caravan would be about half the price. But there is something about being able to travel inside your home that appealed to us more than a caravan that had to be towed behind our car. It just felt more inclusive traveling inside a home. So while toying with the idea of buying a caravan, we unexpectedly found an affordable motorhome. It was an oldie, but a goodie. We weighed up the two options. Would we go with the mobile home wherein the engine and the power that drives the home is part of the vehicle, or would we get a tow bar added to our existing car and tow the caravan behind us? You know, we can actually look at the church of God in the same way as we did when we went shopping for a mobile home. Do you see the church of God as separate from you, a place where you go to a building to meet with God once a week? Or do you see yourself as already connected with God as God's dwelling place, where you are the place where God intimately meets with you and the power of God is within you, not merely external to you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul asked you and me the following question. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Yes, God made you. And when he lost you, he came looking for you. And instead of hooking up behind him and dragging you around against your will, God paid the price for you and bought you back. You are in fact God's mobile home, and he has the receipt and the ownership papers. He wants to live in you through the Holy Spirit, and you get to choose. And if you let him in, he will fill your life with the power and joy of the Holy Spirit that wherever you go, you will glorify God in your body and in your spirit as God's possession and God's dwelling place. 
why not let him in today? I'm Etienne McClintock for Bible 180, where God sets your journey in a new and positive direction. Hello, my name is Lucas, and today I'll be telling you an amazing fact. This amazing fact is called Empty Tanks. On July 23, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 ran out of fuel at 41,000 feet. The new Boeing 767 jet was only halfway through its trip from Montreal to Edmonton when the aircraft's warning system sounded in the cockpit, indicating a fuel problem on the left side. The pilots naturally assumed that a fuel pump had failed and turned off the alarm. But then a few moments later, a second fuel alarm sounded, followed by a loud bong, and then both engines starving for fuel went silent. Obviously, this had stunned the pilots and terrified the 63 passengers. Without any engine power, most of the cockpit instruments went blank, leaving only a few battery-powered basics. Still disbelieving the jet could be out of fuel, the pilots scrambled to restart the engines. When they saw that this was futile, they began frantically searching for charts for any landing strips within gliding distance that would be long enough to accommodate their rapidly descending jet. They turned towards the nearest landing site, a closed airbase at Gimli, Manitoba, 32 kilometers away. What the pilots didn't know was that the decommissioned runway was being used that day as a drag racing strip and was full of cars, campers and people. Without regular engine power, the hydraulic steering became very stiff. Captain Bob Person performed a difficult side-slip maneuver to line up the silently descending aircraft with the runway. As the 767 main gear touched down, the captain stood on the brakes. Then the nose wheel collapsed sending sparks flying 300 feet into the air as the aircraft ploughed down the runway. Miraculously, the crew was able to safely land the jumbo jet and no one was hurt. The subsequent investigation revealed that someone had miscalculated the fuel load. Canadian Airlines had recently adopted the metric system in place of the Imperial system. It takes power to fly an aeroplane up into the blue sky. It also takes power for the Christian to walk worthy of the Lord. If the fuel tank is empty and the engines are not running, you will glide downwards like the Gimli glider. Fortunately, the pilots of Flight 143 made a safe landing, but how many people will crash and burn because they are not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? I hope you enjoyed the story and the amazing fact. Taken from Amazing Facts, copyright 2017 by Amazing Facts, used with permission.
That was Fountain View Academy, If You But Trust in God to Guide You. Before that, we were listening to Henry Higgins' play, Abide With Me. And coming up next, a song by Stephanie Dawn, Broken and Spilled Out. One day a plain village woman Driven by
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.